praise him forever. That is going to be the reality we will experience. So let us do that right now just in prayer. God, we stand blameless with great joy, not on any merit of our own, but because of who you are, how you love, sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf and his life. And Lord, we are in awe of you. And we're asking God now that as we turn to your word, that you would take distractions of the day from us so that we might just completely focus upon you. Would you fill our heart with, once again, the overwhelming joy of what it means to know a risen Savior. So we ask for your Holy Spirit to be our teacher. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated. Really good to see all of you here this morning. If you want to find your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 28, while you're doing that, I want you to know that this morning... We'd like to talk about life's most important question. And surprisingly enough, the most important question of life was asked 2,000 years ago by a very unlikely individual. In fact, he was a Roman governor in the land of Judea. Uh, He asked it on an early Friday morning, and you probably recognize his name, Pontius Pilate. And of course, you know his name because why, why he was the one who actually oversaw the trial and passed judgment upon Jesus. In fact, his name will be forever remembered for these series of trials that took place. And it was in this trial when it seemed like things were unraveling as it was chaotic in a crowd that kept calling for a crucified Jesus that Pilate asked this question, then what shall I do with Jesus, who is the Christ? What shall I do with Jesus. For me personally, I started to really wrestle with that question when I was in high school. Uh, Even though I went to a large high school, I only knew of two actual genuine Christians, people that know Jesus, unashamed of the gospel, and were following him. And they were engaging lost souls like myself with the truth and the reality of who Jesus is and his gospel. But it was when I got to college, it really kicked into high gear when actually starting to read the Bible, having lots of discussions with Christians, trying to answer this question, what will I do with Jesus? And I'm sure that you have wrestled with that question. In fact, maybe that is why you're here this morning. You're like, I'm thinking a lot about this. I've got some pretty significant issues in my life. I know Christians. They say Jesus is the way. But I'd like to know. And I'm in the process of wrestling with that reality, what I will do with Jesus. And some of you are believers in Christ. And that question is always before us. What shall I do with Jesus? I want you to know that your response to Jesus has eternal implications. And it's really interesting that when we read the gospel accounts, like when we come to Matthew chapter 28, we find that the responses to the resurrected Jesus Christ were the same at that time, that very first Easter, as they are today. Now, let me give you a little background before we get into Matthew 28. Uh, Jesus came to this earth. He lived a perfect life. And uh, about at the age of 30 or so, for three years, he conducted an earthly ministry that was unlike anything the world had ever seen. He did miracles that only God could do, heal people that were lame, giving sight to the blind. On three different occasions, he raised someone from the dead. And he's like systematically fulfilling the prophecies that were given in the Old Testament. And not only that, but he had such profound wisdom and he 
explained the way of God, and his life was so inviting, and yet, at the same time, he confronted the Jewish leadership who had turned the one true faith into a book of rules and regulations, and they themselves were the judges, and Jesus stood against them. And that set up a collision course between the religious leadership of the Jews and Jesus, the one who people were calling the Son of David and the Messiah. So much was their hatred for him that they looked for opportunities to put him to death. And finally, um, Passover, about 2,000 years ago, they had their opportunity and they took it. Jesus, having made entrance into Jerusalem, where people were actually hailing him as the king of the Jews, on that Friday, uh, that Thursday night, they actually apprehended him and they had these mock trials, which were, by the way, illegal, even according to their own rules, to have a trial in the middle of night So in order to have some sort of semblance that this is a real, official, legal proceeding, having kind of abused Jesus all night and knowing full well that he was claiming to be God, in fact, he even answered that question, they had the ruling Jews, the Sanhedrin, which was a body of 70 rulers, plus you had the high priest for 71, they condemned Jesus for death for calling himself to be the Christ, the Messiah, But you see, Rome had years before stripped the Jewish authorities from actually executing people. And so they needed Pilate to do that. So in the early morning, they came all together, they officially condemned him, and they hauled him off to a man by the name of Pilate. Pilate had to be awoken from his sleep. And they presented to him, and, and when Pilate examined Jesus, he could find nothing wrong with him. In fact, he declared that he was innocent. But when he heard that he was actually from, his ministry started in Galilee, why, that was outside his jurisdiction, that belonged to Herod Antipas, who was also in Jerusalem for the Passover. So Jesus was examined by Herod Antipas. He said nothing. He was declared innocent. So they abused him and mocked him. Like, what kind of Jewish king is this? Send him back to Pilate. Pilate saw that the, the Jewish leadership would not be satisfied by anything but death And so he asked that question, well, then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? And they all said, crucify him. So Pilate, he actually handed Jesus over to their will. He had Roman soldiers called lictors that actually scourged him, a brutal, bloody mess, painful beyond our imagination. And that followed then crucifixion, the most horrific way, torturous way to die. And so it was for Jesus, dead, a guy by the name of Joseph of Arimathea and another guy by the name of Decadibus asked and requested from Pilate the body of Jesus, clearly was dead, and it was Joseph of Arimathea that placed him in a tomb, a new tomb, that was for him, and they placed the body of Jesus in there. And they wrapped this body in about 100 pounds, according to the Gospel of John, of cloth and aloes and myrrh. That is how they treated the body. They wrapped a separate face cloth over his head. And then they had this giant cylindrical stone rolled in place of the tomb. Now, it was known not only to Jesus' disciples, but even by those who hated him, like the Jewish authorities, that Jesus had made this promise that he was going to come back from the dead. And in order to make sure that that would never happen, The the disciples of Jesus would somehow steal the body of of Jesus and say, ah, look, the grave is empty and he's risen. 
They were not going to have a myth like that being perpetuated. They wanted everything to go back to the way it was when they were in control. And so they asked Pilate to make sure that that grave was secure by having a Roman seal that was put over it, meaning that to tamper with that Roman seal was then to mess with the Roman army itself and to have it guarded. And there were up to about 12 guards that would guard this tomb of a dead man, this man by the name of Jesus. Which brings us then to Matthew chapter 28, verse 1. Now, after the Sabbath, so Jesus was crucified and died on a Friday, was buried, and then on Saturday, it was just confusion, despair, hopelessness for his disciples, for it seemed like Jesus is dead and gone forever. Then on the first day of the week, that third day, now after the Sabbath, as it began, verse 1, began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. There were multiple women on that day. These two Marys are are named. Very early in the morning, they came to go to the grave of Jesus. They had watched as he had been buried. They saw the tomb sealed with that giant stone. In fact, Mark remarks that they were curious and wondering how they were going to actually have this large stone moved away so that they could bring their signs of respect. Similar to like we would bring flowers to the grave of a loved one to show our love and our respect, so they're bringing myrrh and aloes to place on top of the wrapped body of Jesus. But when they got there, they were absolutely shocked. Verse 2, And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing was white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. So here they come and all of a sudden the earth is shaking. There was an earthquake when Jesus died. Remember that? When he yelled out, it is finished. When he paid the penalty of death for sin, he declared it is finished. And there was this earthquake. Well, on that first Sunday, that first Easter, there was another earthquake with this angel coming, rolling away the stone. And it was so tremendous. And the angelic appearance, white as lightning, these guards saw and were literally shaking and like just passed out out of sheer shock and fear, and awe. These women are totally taking this as well. They're taking it all in, seeing this thing. What's taking place? Not having any comprehension. Seeing this angel, magnificence, bright, lightning, earth shaking. And it's at this time then that the angel said to the women, verse 5, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here For he has risen. Just as he said, come, see the place where he was lying. So these women then hear this angel speak, and he makes the statement, do not be afraid, because they're literally cowering in fear. It's interesting that the soldiers, they they seem to be completely after their time of tremor. They're like passed out on the ground, and that's no small feat, because these are battle-hardened soldiers. Most of us who are civilians... We can't handle a lot of shock and awe, right? But if you've been through the war, you've faced some battles, you're tested. You're not going to be easily moved. But these soldiers were like frozen. 
They were literally scared to death. And these women, they're taking this all in. And this angel, this angel said to the women, do not be afraid, because they had everything to be afraid of. And then they, they're surprised. Listen to what he says. For I know you, you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. I know why you've come. I know why you have these burr and these aloes in your hands. I know you've come to see Jesus who's been crucified. You need to know something. He is not here. Why? He is risen. Just as he said, on multiple occasions, Jesus had told his disciples and these women that had traveled with the company of disciples, supporting, helping, they too knew of these promises that Jesus said that indeed he was going to be mistreated by the Jews. He was going to be handed over to the Gentiles who would mock, surge, scourge, and crucify him. But he said, but on the third day, I will rise again. You can read about like Matthew chapter 20, verses 18 and 19. On multiple occasions, Jesus made this prediction. And he said, this is what's going to happen. But it's as if they, they just kind of forgot about all that. And now they're just startled. And they're listening to what the angel said. And he's saying, just as he said, stressing the importance of his word. And then this angel, you, you got to love it. He says this. He said, come and see the place where he was lying. When the angel moved away that cylindrical stone, that wasn't for like so Jesus could slip out. No, it's so that people could look in. And so he invites them, come and see the place where he was lying. And so here these women are, and they're like, whoa, what? Stone? And so they, in the very early morning, they are the first ones to walk and to see, come and see where he was lying. And what is it that they saw when they walked in to this tomb? Well, they saw all these wrappings of grave clothes. But they weren't like just strewn everywhere and thrown about. Why, actually, they were in the shape of a body. It was like a cocoon, like a hundred pounds of them. And that face cloth that, it, that the head in, of Jesus had been wrapped in, why, it's all rolled up, and it's set aside. And they're taking this all in. And they're like, wait, the angel's reminding us of what Jesus had said. He's going to rise again on the third day. And so we see that's exactly what Peter and John said. That's how we know exactly what they saw because they write about their experiences in John chapter 20, verses 5 through 7. That's what they saw. They saw an empty tomb, but they saw like a cocoon of wrappings and the face cloth and the explanation. He's not here. He is risen from the dead. And with that then, the angel gives direction. He says, go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold... He's going ahead of you into Galilee, and there you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And so he says, listen, I, want, I have your first assignment, you who believe. I want you to go quickly, and you go tell those disciples that Jesus is risen from the grave. And just like he had told them at that final Passover, remember when they had that last supper together? He said, I'm going to meet you in Galilee. I will be raised on the third day. And that's where Galilee, that's where it all got started for most of the disciples. Remember? It was their home territory. It's where they lived. They'd spent their whole lives. It is where Jesus, at the very beginning of his ministry, he had called them to himself. And he said, 
I know a lot of you are fishermen, but I'm going to make you a fisher of men. I'm going to transform your life. I'm going to invest in you. I'm going to train you. I'm going to empower you. And I am going to, when this is all over and I am resurrected from the dead, I'm going to meet you again in Galilee to once again restate my ministry, to once again reinforce my kingdom and to commission you in my work. You tell them I will meet them in Galilee. That's what the angel conveys. And it's not that he wasn't going to appear before he met them in Galilee, but this was a central event that Jesus kept speaking about prior to his death, and now it's being proclaimed by this angel. Well, I want you to know, these women hear what they're they're to do. They're to go quickly. They're to move out, and that's exactly what they do. Verse 8, and they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report to his disciples. So, I mean, I don't know how much running and jogging these women did prior to this event, But I want you to know, they got quite a workout that very first Easter, and they ran quickly. I mean, think if you you were, that was your experience. The angel, the guards down on the ground, the, the stone rolled away, the empty tomb, the proclamation that he's risen from the dead. I mean, adrenaline, joy, fear, that has the idea of being overcome with awe. They're moving, they're running as fast as they can to tell the disciples, they'll take the most direct route to tell them this news, that Jesus is risen from the dead. And so they're on their way. They're filled with great joy, great fear. And look at verse 9. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Let that sink in. They see Jesus and he greeted them. In the Greek, This is really similar to our word, hello. It's as if he just said, good morning, ladies. And they're like, what? And they approach him, and they go down on their knees. Look what happens there. Do you see that? They came up, and they took hold of his feet and worshipped him. This isn't a hallucination. This isn't some sort of make-believe. This is actual reality. Blood, body, their hands touching his feet. This was a sign of like reverence, obeisance that it would do to like kings in the Near East. You would fall down and you would touch their feet. And these women are absolutely worshiping Jesus. And they are touching his feet. What do you think they saw when their faces went down next to the feet of Jesus? You know, we're familiar with a guy named Thomas. He shows up about eight days later. Remember, he's, he's pretty famous, right? You've heard of him. He's doubting Thomas, right? I'm not going to believe until I take my fingers and put it into the holes in his hands and take my hand and put it in that hole in his side, you know, where that soldier lanced his side to just completely show and prove that this guy, Jesus, is dead. I won't believe until I do that. Remember that? But you know the first people to actually see the nail scars on the Messiah? Why, it's these women. In their first-hand account, they see it, and they see that he's alive, and they are worshiping him. And verse 10, when Jesus said to them, then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. I'm sure they were completely overwhelmed, and you see great compassion here of the Savior. Do not, do not be afraid. I want you to go 
and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. He says basically what the angel said. He's just repeating himself to what he had told them just a few days ago at that final Passover. But here's something I I want you to see. I I have an underline in my Bible because it is absolutely unique to the entire all gospel accounts. He said, go and take word to my brethren. This is the only time in the gospels that Jesus calls his disciples my brothers, my family. Let that sink in. With Jesus, there was such warmth, such love, such understanding. I mean, his disciples, why, most of them couldn't even show up for the crucifixion, right? They were just shaking in fear. They thought they were going to be next. You got John, who made an appearance. Jesus on the cross tells, listen, I want you to take care of my mother. But the rest of them, they're either so far in a distance or they're just abandoned altogether. And of course, remember Peter, kind of the ringleader, the top guy? Oh, you know, Jesus, I'll never deny you, blah, blah, blah. Remember that? And then, of course, wow, turn up the fire, the heat gets on. Guess what? Oh, I don't know the man, right? You're not believing me? I'll start swearing to prove this. I don't know this guy, right? And Jesus, the resurrected Jesus says, you go tell my my brethren. Wow, what love and compassion. I mean, interesting, when you see the women when they, they counter the angel, They're like all totally fearful, right? They're totally backing off. Whoa, what's going on here, right? But they are like magnetically drawn to Jesus. His warmth, compassion, this resurrected one. They've never felt so secure, never felt so loved. This isn't a forced worship. This is worship from the heart. They love him. They're moved by him. They're bowing down before him. I want you to know, when we come to that first Easter we see this very first response to the resurrected Christ. And that first response is this, to devote yourself to him. You're like, what does that mean to be devoted to Jesus? Well, it's exactly what you see here in the text. To worship him and to obey him. If you are devoted to Jesus, this becomes your life. Worship him and obey him. But I want you to know that there are other responses to the resurrected Jesus Christ. And we find it also in this text. Experienced 2,000 years ago, experienced this very day. For some, they will devote themselves to Jesus. For others, though, they'll deliberate over the facts about him. Take a look at verse 11. Now, while they were on their way, okay, and they are running quickly, the women are making their way to Jerusalem. Remember, Jerusalem is packed out with all the people of Israel because they're all gathered in Jerusalem for the Passover. And then some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had been happened. So this is really interesting. It says some of the guard. So it would be estimated there would be up to 12 soldiers guarding the tomb of Jesus. So when they finally come to, and they're like, what in the world? What happened? Stone, wait, what, that angel, that lightning white, what? They look at that tomb. They see the exact same thing those women did. Whoa, 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 whoa. Where? You've got to be kidding me. The, the body is gone. It's all, here's all those wrappings. It's in like a cocoon shape. What is, what is going on? So some of them, maybe they're on the search. They're trying to figure this out. But some of them go back. And notice, they don't go back to Pilate. And that is a very good reason why. Because if you're a Roman soldier, 
and you lost your prisoner or your prisoner escaped while you were on watch, do you know what happened to you? You were examined and then you were executed. And there are examples of that in the book of Acts where that's exactly what happened. Remember like when Peter was released from jail, God broke him out? Those soldiers were examined and they were executed. And those guys, that's the last thing they would want. I mean, they didn't have that tough of an assignment, right? You just have to guard the tomb of a guy who's dead. I think we could handle that, right? Unless he's God. And so they go to the, the chief priests. They go to the religious leaders. You see that? They, they believe that these religious leaders who know the Bible backwards and forwards, they're Jewish. Then this, this, this Jesus was crucified because he was the king of the Jews, right? That's what he even said on the little placard on his cross. They know. That's why you handed him over. He claimed to be the Messiah. You didn't like it. But now he's not here. He's risen. He's back from the dead. So maybe you can explain this to us. Because you know the Bible. You know what's happening, right? And they probably thought that not only the Jewish leaders could explain the situation, what's actually happening, but perhaps even exonerate them. And so they go. They're deliberating over the facts and what they mean. They're talking among themselves, and they bring it to the Jewish authorities. And I want you to know that's one of the responses that we have even today when it comes to the resurrected Christ. People that are deliberating over the facts about him. But there is another response to the resurrected Christ, and we find that in verses 12 through 15, and that is to deny the truth about him. So these soldiers, they make their way to the chief priests. They report everything. Interesting word, report. It means to inform without necessarily fully understanding all that you're saying. That they're deliberating over this. What in the world does this mean? And then they come and hear from the assembled elders. Take a look at this. When they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, so you got about 71 of them. Maybe a few weren't, weren't there, but most of them were there. They consulted together, and this is how they decided they would respond. Let this sink in. They gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, you are to say, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. Now, I find this shocking because they knew Jesus. They saw the miracles. They knew that he was systematically fulfilling prophecies. People were calling him the son of David and probably try, trying to figure out, like, why aren't our leaders getting this? That's because they did not want a Messiah that was going to upend them. They want to be at the top of the pile. They do not want Jesus as their Messiah. But you think that they would have been stopped short and said, whoa, 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 wait a second here. You know, we've been kind of playing along, well, maybe this or that or whatever, but I want you to know, like, if he's back from the dead, we ought to stop and take a time out because we might have just got this one wrong. And here are these soldiers, and they're still a little bit shaky, and they're telling us everything that had happened. And they're like, no way. You want to see the power of unbelief? And rejection of Jesus? Take a look at how these guys respond. They decide, you know what we'll do? We'll pay them off. I mean, I find this to be rather ironic. They are forced to bribe the guards to perpetuate and spread a lie that they themselves were trying to prevent. Right? 
That's why we don't want to, we don't want this like story about the Jesus rising from the dead when the disciples uh, hauled him off. No, 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 no. But yet, now that's what they're paying them to do. You know why? Because you see, Jesus rising from the dead, that didn't fit their narrative. They got their story of how life is. And Jesus being Lord and King and them worshiping him and following him, that doesn't work. We don't want him. Or how we would say it today is, that's not my truth. All right? All right? You got, you got your truth, but I've got my truth. And my truth is, I don't care about the facts. My truth is, Jesus doesn't come back from the dead. And so we'll perpetuate a lie. And that's exactly what they did. And they paid, it says in verse 12, they gave him a large sum of money. That word money there is silver. Ring a bell? Well, do you remember they used silver? In fact, 30 pieces, the exact same word, with a a guy named Judas who was a traveling companion of Jesus, one of the 12. In fact, the guy in charge of the money, money was really important to Judas, and they paid him off with 30 pieces of silver. Remember that? You turn him over, we'll pay you off. This isn't how much. It happened to me, by the way, to fulfill a prophecy in the book of Zechariah, but they did that, but now they've got 12 of them, up to 12 soldiers. It's going to take a large sum of money because these soldiers actually know what has happened, right? They've seen it with their own eyes. But we're going to pay you off. That seems like how they handled things. We've got a truth, our truth, that we want to present. This is our narrative. You go along with it. And so they do. They said, verse 13, you're to say, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. That's going to be a pretty hard sell for the soldiers. By the way, I've been thinking a lot about this. This fabricated story, it's full of holes. Talk about not thinking it through. Talk about bad leadership. Let me, let me just give you some of the reasons that I've come up with. I got seven right here. Why, first of all, it would be very unlikely that all of the guards would have been asleep on guard duty, right? Because the penalty for falling asleep when you're on duty was death. Pretty sure we can stay awake. Energy drink, whatever it's going to take, we can do it. Let me give you another. Furthermore, rolling the stone away would surely have awakened at least some of the soldiers. Let's say they were all taking their siesta, right? They're all sleeping. You think that like, they didn't hear a stone, a huge stone being moved? I don't think so. Even if they're wearing earplugs, I'm pretty sure they'd hear it. And then how did they know? How did they know that the disciples moved away the stone and stole the body of Jesus when they're asleep, right? I mean, there's a lot of things that take place when you're sleeping. I'm pretty sure you have no idea, right? This doesn't make any sense. That means they're basically telling these these soldiers, listen, we're paying you off and we're paying you handsomely. Don't take questions. Because there's going to be some pretty obvious ones like, well, how do you know if you were asleep? Like, we're not taking questions here, right? That's kind of how he handled those things. And let me give you some more. Um, This is so out of character for the disciples. I mean, they couldn't even show up for the crucifixion for the most part, right? Do you really think they're like, oh, you know, we really blew it back there? We've got to perpetuate this, man. Jesus somehow has to appear that he's alive. Let's go. Come on, guys. And we're going to go. We're going to overpower those soldiers. It doesn't matter. We're pretty tough, right? We've got one sword among us, right? We're going to move that huge stone. We're going to steal the body. In fact, we'll make it look really good. And we're going to perpetuate the myth and just kind of have our nice little religion. Does that sound like the disciples? No. They're cowering in fear. They think they're next. 
Let me give you another reason why I think this is just full of holes, seriously problematic. If the disciples had stolen the body of Jesus, do you think they would have taken all the time to unwrap the body of Jesus, take the body of Jesus, and then reform it like in this giant cocoon and then put the face cloth there? No. If you're stealing something, it's pretty much a grab and go. You're not into aesthetics, right? In fact, it would make it easier just to take it. It's all wrapped up. Let's go, guys, right? No, pretty sure that's not what happened. And finally, if this truly happened, then why didn't the religious leaders just go to Pilate and say, hey, look, I think there's been another crime that's been committed. Those disciples, they broke your Roman seal. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and they somehow stole the body of Jesus. Go arrest them and deal with them. Well, they can't do it because that's a lie. This whole story is full of holes. And they want these guards to perpetuate this lie. And so verse 14, it's like, man, they, they can read the room. They know these soldiers are like, you got to be kidding. That is ridiculous. Us sleeping, disciples taking body of Jesus when we're on guard? I don't think so. Here's your money. And I know you're worried about something. I want you to know you can trust us. We'll take care of you. Look at verse 14. And if... And just if this should come to the governor's ear, by the way, Jesus is totally on his radar. In fact, he just had him crucified. If this comes to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. Guys, guards, we got your back. You can trust us. We'll win him over. Well, we already see, I mean, several different times here as we go through the gospel accounts, how do we win people over and make friends? We pay you off, right? Well, they also have another trump card, and they used it at the crucifixion of Jesus, remember? Hey, listen, are you a friend of Caesar? Well, you can't have a guy like Jesus. And they already knew that Pilate was on tentative ground because the Roman Senate was questioning whether or not Pilate was really fit to lead this part of Israel on the far ends of the Roman Empire. They're like, you know, if it came to push came to shove, why, Pilate, we can get rid of you pretty quick. So you better go along with this. Guys, you don't have to worry it. We've got you covered. Just go and move forward and live out and speak of this lie. I want you to know that um, this, you need to let this really sink in. It really, it shows you the obstinacy of unbelief. Faced with the evidence, you know what they do? They live a lie. I want you to know that Easter isn't about nice feelings and pretty clothes. I might be a part of it, but I want you to know Easter is about the facts the truth. It's the facts of the resurrection, of who Jesus is. And if you look at the facts and you're like, wow, I see the facts, but I don't want that. I don't want that for my life. Let's just be realistic. You are choosing to live a lie. And it, by the way, has eternal implications. So can I ask you, what will you do with Jesus? Well, we see here in verse 15, (laughs) they took the money and they did as they had been instructed And this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. Matthew is writing this gospel under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit about 30 years after this event. That story, that lie, that myth, why, that still was out there. And so I'm just asking you, what will you do with Jesus? Central to a genuine relationship with God is the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
the gospel accounts, book of Acts and 1 Corinthians, give us about 12 different times that Jesus made a physical appearance in his resurrected form. And it was not only that he appeared to them, but where they could actually touch him, put their fingers in the holes, he ate with them, he breathed on them. It says in 1 Corinthians 15 that he actually he appeared to more than 500 at one time. This isn't a hallucination. These are reality. They could touch him, they could see him, they could feel him. So there's all these eyewitness accounts of who Jesus is. The, the resurrection, that's not just good news, it's the very best news. Jesus himself said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. You see, the one thing that changes my past, our present, and our future is this. Jesus is risen from the dead. What will you do with Jesus? When I was a kid, I was fascinated by magnets. And it's really cool. Like, I could take a magnet and run it through sand, and those metal filings would be attracted to that. Now, I, did, I learned this later, but what takes place is that magnetic force, when it hits iron, the, atoms, the iron atoms, all, the electrons start aligning with the magnetic field where they too become magnetic, and that's where the attraction happens. I want you to know that's what happens with Jesus. There is a magnetism to the Messiah, And he is drawing his people to himself, where they're even sharing his qualities because they're sharing his life. And so if you're here today, and you you have yet to place your faith in Christ, let me give you the call of Easter. It's simply this. It's what we see in the text. Come and see. Just come. It's, It's the word of invitation. Yeah, we're all unworthy. We're all sinners. He invites us to come. Come and see. Examine the evidence. See who Jesus really is. And you're like, well, I'm totally unworthy. I want you to know that's why he's come. He has come to die and pay the penalty of our, for our sins so that we who believe will have life eternal. Or you might be saying, you know what? I've got some reasons why I don't want to believe in God, okay? I'm really smart, and I've, I've given some thought to this. You know what the call of Easter is? It's, this is the Easter invitation. Bring it. Do not do the intellectual complacency. Well, I'm just, I'm just not going to think about it. No, no, no. That's, I want you to know your decision on what you do with Jesus has eternal implications. Whatever your arguments are, whatever your reasons, well, I'm not going to believe, take them. Take them to God. He's inviting you. Examine the facts and make your decision. Put your faith in where the facts lead you. And it's come and see, and then it's know and grow because God wants to transform your life. That's why you've been designed and created, to know him, to live in him, and to love him. But if you are here today and you're a Christian, let me tell you what the call of Easter is. Why, it's exactly what we see in the text here in 6 and 7. It's come and see. In life, on a regular basis, it's going to weigh us down. We're going to feel overwhelmed. You know what we need to do? We just keep coming back to Jesus. We look and see the evidence. We read the word. We come and see We have God revive our heart with the reality of relationship with the risen Lord, and we go and tell. God wants us to move forward in our spheres of influence. We live as light in the Lord, and you know what else we do? We speak of him. We have a message. Go and tell. Verse 7, right? And so you tell people, Jesus, what he's done, forgiveness he's brought, how he has transformed your life, how he has seen you through difficulty, that pain, that anguish, 
Maybe you've lived with a mental illness for years and you're like, how does one person like you get through all this? How do you move forward? How do you have hope even in the midst of brokenness? I'll tell you why. Because of Jesus. He's risen from the dead. And so, friends, we come to Easter. And when we do, we find that these four words in verses 6 and 7, they really encompass the entire Christian experience. Come and see. Go and tell. You see, we know the risen Christ as we come and see, and we grow in our faith as we go and tell. So I would like to just ask you this Easter, what will you do with Jesus? Let's pray. As your heads are bowed, I'd like to know, are you being drawn by the magnetism of the Messiah? Do you sense how he's drawing you to himself? There'll be an awareness of sin, but there'll also be the loveliness of a Savior who has died and paid the penalty of that sin and rose again on your behalf. And so let us pray. Lord, we come before you. And you've said in the scripture, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. So for someone who is here today who's never truly trusted in Jesus, but they see him, they sense his presence, they see the need, but they pray with me and say, God, I turn from myself and my sin, I repent. And this Easter, God, I I put my faith in Jesus. The facts as they're presented with great clarity, I put my trust and faith in Jesus, the risen one. Lead me, fill me with your love. And Lord, for those of us who do know you, God, may our hearts once again be revived as we come and see a risen Savior. And as we walk through those doors, we we go as your light and we tell of your life. God, fill us with your joy. May we walk and live in your love. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.